0: Demagogue, the definitive biography of Senator Joe McCarthy, based on first ever access to the Senator's personal and professional papers and recently unsealed transcripts of his closed-door congressional hearings from New York Times best-selling author Larry Ty. Available now. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. This December will mark the 10th anniversary of the Arab Spring, a series of mass protests against repressive governments and poor living conditions in the Middle East. It was a time of great hope. You didn't have to be a hawk who thought that US intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan had ignited a passion for democracy in the region, to feel it. However, the violent repression that followed And the Syrian civil war, the rise of the Islamic State, the refugee crisis, the collapse of Libya, makes that optimism difficult to recall. In the August issue, Annie Hilton writes about a Syrian human rights lawyer who, after migrating to Germany, has spearheaded cases against Assad regime torturers who have also fled Syria. I spoke with Hilton about the difficulty of seeking justice in international courts, as well as the cases that could give some victims a sense of closure. Your story centers around the Syrian human rights lawyer, Al-Buni, who was forced to flee Syria and has now become the leader or one of the leaders of the attempt to bring Syria's war criminals to justice in European courts. Could you tell us how this came about?
1: Sure, I think it was a confluence of factors. Uh, When Al-Buni first arrived in Germany in 2014, he was a bit aimless. His priority was his family and to seek protection. So it took him a while to get his footing. He had seen Anwar Raslan, a former colonel in Assad's regime, at the same refugee camp in Germany where his family had been placed. But he didn't think he could do anything about it. He knew Raslan had defected and had the help of opposition figures to get to Germany. But Albuni wasn't aware that the law in Germany allowed for these universal jurisdiction cases. And basically, this principle permits national courts to investigate and prosecute serious crimes like genocide and torture that have been committed abroad by foreign nationals. So at first, his focus was really on high-level perpetrators in Syria, and he was working with partner organizations in Europe to get international arrest warrants issued against those individuals. But around 2015, and sort of the, the year preceding, nearly half a million Syrians arrived in Germany and tens of thousands more in other European countries. So Albuni started hearing from people about Syrian officials or regime-aligned individuals who had escaped with the refugee flow. And he sort of understood around then this principle of universal jurisdiction meant that those people could be subject to criminal prosecution in Europe. So it was not just these individuals arriving, but it was also clients of his from Syria who had suffered at the hands of the regime. And this extensive network of his allowed him to start building these case files and archives with the hopes of eventually submitting them to European prosecutors. Mm -hmm. And I think on an individual level, Albuni's life is entirely devoted to seeking justice for Syrians and providing hope to victims. And I think he understands that this is not perfect justice, and that Europe isn't necessarily the ideal theater to pursue these cases. Mm -hmm. But it's somehow what's available for the time being.
0: Often in a story like this, you would expect for the voice uh, to occasionally break away and go into a general historical and political context. But your piece is very tightly focused on the human story of Anwar el-Buni and his attempt to bring Anwar Raslan to justice, which has the effect, similar to the trial itself, of foregrounding the experiences and actions of individuals rather than governments. So how mm-hmm. did you decide to tell the story this way?
1: Absolutely. That's a really good question. I think this could have this could have equally been a story about how European governments are not doing enough despite having people who committed crimes in Syria on their territory. It could have also been about how Germany gave refugee status to Raslan, how that actually came to be, etc. But Rachel Poser, my editor, and I had several discussions about what threads would serve the story and drive the narrative. And I think at this point, it's very sad to say, but I think people have fatigue about Syria. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to say that it's an air quote, like over there problem. But I think grounding the narrative in individuals like Albuni has the effect of making the ongoing story of Syria more relatable and, and less abstract. Mm-hmm. So showing Albuni in the process of making decisions and his suffering and devotion to his work really puts the reader in his world. So we kind of laid the bits of context and historical information onto Albuni's story, so as not to divert too much from the main storyline.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, it's just one of those phenomenons where like, the longer a conflict goes, the more abstract it becomes to certain people, yeah. because it's not in the news, or it's like, oh, yeah, that's just still happening. But I, I, yeah. I think it was a, I think this is a very good approach. Um, have there been any more developments in Roslan's case since this went to press? Uh, I guess it would have been in May. And if not, what what about the other cases that Albuni is pursuing?
1: Sure. So since this went to press, Albuni testified in the trial as an expert witness. He was asked to discuss his work in Syria as he represented a few survivors involved in the trial after they were released from detention in Branch 251 in Syria, which Anwar Raslan, the accused, oversaw. So he was asked to speak about his general knowledge, and he described people looking like ghosts after they were released, and he also spoke of the regime's pattern of repression, forced disappearances and torture, which, you know, he spent decades fighting. Several survivors have also testified, as have a few insiders, but the trial is moving slowly and is still very much at the early stages. So I think it'll be a while yet until we see it conclude. But as for the other cases Albuni's pursuing really interesting and troubling. in June actually a doctor named Ala Musa, uh, he's identified as Ala M by German authorities was arrested in Germany and he's accused of torturing a detainee in a secret military prison in Homs. and he had come to Germany. I believe in 2015, and was practicing as a doctor until he wow. was arrested just a couple of months ago. And refugees recognized him working in a clinic. So Al Buni helped identify witnesses in that case, and that's one that's since been made public. But he's actively pursuing cases in in several European jurisdictions, all of which are. Equally disturbing, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not yeah. I mean, that's good.
0: <laughs> it's good that these are moving. Uh, but I mean, you describe this in your piece that you know when it you know when Rosslan was first taken to trial. You know, this was at the start of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Not very many people were there, um, mm-hmm. and considering the Assad regime, maybe not the most truthful, and that there's good reason to believe that they have been drastically underreporting coronavirus cases in Syria, and the outbreak is deepening the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Northwest Syria. So what do we know about this and about the state of the region more generally? You know, because it's not we're we're sort of out of a time when a lot of on the ground reporting is is impossible.
1: Yeah, I think, as you say, the coronavirus is undoubtedly compounding what's already a catastrophic humanitarian situation and years of conflict have been totally ruinous to Syria's healthcare system. In the Northwest, there are some 2.7 million people displaced, living in dangerously overcrowded camps where health conditions are disastrous, and it's impossible to physically distance. And the press reported a few days ago that Several people had tested positive in the Al-Hul camp, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a displacement camp with tens of thousands of people, many of whom are suffering from malnutrition and disease. This is the camp where relatives of ISIS members are detained or ISIS-aligned individuals. And aid groups are concerned that few tests have been made available in the region. And if they run out, which they're set to do, it will be impossible to trace and contain the spread of the virus. So it's very troubling. And I think the key point is that we just don't know enough.
0: Hmm. Do you think at some point there could be some sort of humanitarian intervention on that level? Or is it just too
1: too early to say? Yeah, I think it's too early to say. I think the latest press reports indicate that there are Infections in the displacement camps, and that aid groups are struggling to test people and to trace the spread. And beyond that, it's difficult to say how severe the situation is, mm. um, because, as you say, the Assad regime is underreporting cases, and it's hard to get a grasp on what's really happening. Mm. And since June,
0: the U.S. State Department has been gradually imposing sanctions on the Assad regime under the Caesar Syria Civil Protection Act. A very artful name uh, for sanctions that are just (sighs) horrific and are going to kill people. Um, And article published, I guess last week in the New York Times reported on the heavy criticism the sanctions are receiving from humanitarian and diplomatic experts, both for being ineffectual and increasing the existing economic burden on a country that's been impoverished by a long civil war. Could you help us understand some of the context here?
1: Sure. To the extent that I understand it myself. Um, So I guess for listeners who aren't familiar with the Caesar bill, the law, as you said, went into effect in mid-June, and it aims through economic sanctions against Syria to end the war and break Assad's hold on power. And to that end, the law gives the U.S. power to freeze assets of any person or entity doing business with Assad and punishes individuals and corporations that enable certain sectors of the economy. And I think, you know, dozens of people have already been sanctioned, including Assad's wife, Asma Mm -hmm. al-Assad and other members of his family, as well as military leaders. And the concern is that focusing entirely on economic sanctions is short-sighted and one needs a broader strategy because the sanctions restrict reconstruction efforts. It could hamper recovery efforts and it could cripple you know, the humanitarian sector that's already suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the Syrian people could pay the price if it ends up having an effect on aid efforts inadvertently, although that's an exemption. Um, And these are really legitimate critiques. On the other hand, human rights advocates like... Stephen Rapp, for example, who is the former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues in the Office of Global Criminal Justice. It's a very long title. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written about this and he claims that, you know, economic sanctions are an effective method and tool to go after human rights violators and businesses that prop them up and according to rap the bill sends a strong message to assad supporters and it can extend as far as banks and entities doing transactions in new york for example mm-hmm. the bill i i you know it could also open the possibility for victims to pursue legal action against these companies that knowingly deal with sanctioned individuals mm-hmm. or entities. So I think, you know, there are legitimate arguments on both sides of this bill and I don't claim to know one way or another, but I I suppose that you know, time will tell and we shall wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just
0: seems like one of many things the trump administration has done to just try and wrap it up like there's not it seems very uh well as you say there are good and bad elements to it but your your article highlights some interesting internal tensions among human rights activists who support waslan's prosecution and similar cases There are concerns that these trials might help European governments let themselves off the hook for what's happened in Syria, that they may Mm -hmm. dissuade others from defecting, that they might direct attention away from the heads of the Syrian regime and toward lower level operators like Mm Raslan. And, you know, reading about these tensions, it's, it's hard not to be reminded of the trial of Adolf Eichmann after the Holocaust, which Hannah Arendt famously described as a show trial and political theater. Albuni, however, seems to see this as a straightforward moral responsibility. In your experience as a journalist and as a human rights lawyer, what do you think history might tell us about the effects of trials like this?
1: Yeah. So I think it depends first on Whether or not you agree with Hannah Arendt's interpretation of the Eichmann trial. Um, Either way, to provide context, the trial in Germany is the first anywhere in the world to prosecute state sponsored torture involving members of, or former members of the Syrian regime. And what's remarkable about it, I think, is that unlike in the case of Rwanda, say, or Bosnia, which took years, even decades, to successfully charge and prosecute perpetrators, here we have a case in which the conflict is ongoing in real time, where Rossland's ex-colleagues continue to commit atrocities in the very same facility. And I think the trial isn't happening completely devoid of the context or community it impacts, which can sometimes happen in these in these universal jurisdiction cases. You know, there are some 800,000 Syrians living in Germany and even symbolically it seems to be incredibly hope giving and meaningful mm. um, i think you know these third country cases are sometimes the only path to justice and at least for the time being that seems to be the case here but i i do see the danger of overselling the importance of of such trials especially in the case of Raslan and his subordinates Albuni is adamant that <laughs> this trial has an impact on Assad and his supporters but I am I'm not I'm not so convinced I think it's clear that this is not by any means complete justice and critics are right to point out that the highest level perpetrators enjoy impunity and I think that's something we need to keep in mind here and i think one of the things that history can tell us that is important in this context is that when justice mechanisms have been put in place following broad scale atrocity where victims can fully participate and there's some kind of due process there's less likelihood of a recurrence and mm-hmm. To me, that that is really interesting. Yeah,
0: and of course, the I, the notion of justice itself is such a slippery, hard to define concept. Absolutely, so, like, yeah. It's um, leave it to the lawyers and the philosophers on that one. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I am not even going to try to d- dive into that. But
1: me either. You know, you are a human rights lawyer, so is Al I should I should specify that I am not a practicing lawyer. I've just I've been trained as a lawyer, right? And with your background,
0: using your background mm-hmm. in this in this training, you've written about victims' search for justice in other countries. Um, you wrote something for Harper's Online about a Liberian war criminal and trying to bring him before uh, some court and the difficulties yeah. around that, and in Liberia, in Syria, in Cambodia, there have been instances where the local government is unable or unwilling to pursue action against those who committed atrocities. And because there are a lot of conflicts that have happened over the past 30 years, the laws aren't as strict about prosecuting modern day war criminals as there were after, say, World War II. So do you feel like this is a problem of awareness or it's it's evidence of a, a more conservative shift in how we deal with war
1: criminals? That's a really good and important question, though a tough one to answer. I think it's difficult to place today's atrocities or you know recent atrocities within the framework of the post-World War II legal mechanisms, because the nature of conflict has evolved, as has the law on punishing and prosecuting atrocity crimes. But it's true, and this is according to Rapp, Stephen Rapp, who I consider an expert and authority on this, that international criminal justice is receiving less support from major powers than at any time since the end of the Cold War. Hmm. There is certainly a lack of political will by authorities to hold perpetrators accountable. Um, You know, one recent example is the Trump administration leading, you know, a hostile campaign against the International Criminal Court for pursuing an investigation in part on whether U.S. military and CIA personnel committed war crimes in Afghanistan.
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, clearly the U.S. has eroded its credibility when it comes to international justice. And in terms of national efforts, behind the scenes, there are human rights advocates and lawyers working tirelessly to see justice done and to prosecute perpetrators who enter U.S. territory. But the legal framework is so inadequate. And any efforts in the last several years, even longer than a decade, to introduce or amend legislation that might make it easier have simply failed. So, you know, there's an effort by prosecutors to use this tactic called the Al Capone method, in human rights cases which is available you know in situations when the statute of limitation has expired or or the US just simply doesn't have the jurisdiction to prosecute a foreign crime and basically that means that an individual who may have committed war crimes abroad who did so you know many many years ago cannot be prosecuted for those core crimes and instead will be prosecuted for I mean, I should say, in many cases, can't be prosecuted for those core crimes, and instead will be prosecuted for immigration fraud, which I think just gives you a sense of the tools that people have available to them when they are trying to seek justice and prosecute individuals for really heinous acts. Um, and one American attorney. I spoke to a while ago when as far as to say that the U.S. is an attractive place to avoid prosecution, and our laws are such that people can escape punishment at home and try to fly under the radar here in the U.S., mm. which is pretty telling. Yeah.
0: honest, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you, you say, the, the Trump administration trying to avoid holding people who committed torture accountable. I mean, that says it all. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, And I guess, final question, how has your training as a human rights lawyer informed your writing? And I mean, not just in terms of subject matter, but how you approach breaking down these sometimes very legally complicated Cases that involve you know different countries, perhaps a a um, truth and reconciliation commission that was uh, not acted upon that that sort of thing.
1: Oh yeah, I mean whether consciously or not, I think I am often drawn towards writing and stories that involves some kind of injustice and where I feel I can contribute something to. Expose that injustice. And I often look to instead of distilling complex legal matters or, you know, the details of the law that may not be totally relevant to an average reader, I try to look at the policy implications and whether, you know, for instance, is there a loophole that exists that creates this pattern in which people are allowed to walk freely mm-hmm. or are there certain communities that are struggling more than others because of some inadvertent effect the law has? I think, you know, at the core of what I try to do and what I feel passionate about is is people and the people at the center of these policies and how they harm them so I'm often s- searching for the people who can tell us a story about our society and where we're doing wrong mm.
0: well I think we can end it there so thank you well thank you you've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins the music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit
1: harpers.org save.